The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see, kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Uh, today I'm with number 40 squadron, RNZF, at Fenilpai. And I've got a few uh, members of the squadron here in the room, and um, I'll just let them introduce themselves. And my name's Wing Commander Blair Orisher. I'm the commanding officer of number 40 squadron. I'm Flight Sergeant David Wood. I'm one of the uh, airload master instructors on the unit. I'm Flight Sergeant Robin Cliffey, and I'm also an instructor but a flight engineer. I'm uh, Warren Austin Darren Wells, and the maintenance Warren Austin. Cool. So we're talking about the Hercules, uh, the C-130H, which has been in service uh, since 1965. It's coming up to the end of its life. And I just wanted to get a few stories uh, and memories and um, interesting things in, in its operation and, and, this, and your own personal stories uh, with it. So um, what, what does the Hercules mean to you? I mean, for most of us, it's been uh, it's been the only aircraft we've flown throughout our career. Um, I mean, I think for the three of us here in Fidari, it's probably more than twenty years for most of us. So, um, you know, it's been a pretty it's, it's been an important part of our lives. It's been a it's been a critical part of our aviation journey. Um, and I guess it's been a it's been a real privilege to be part of the C one thirties journey, which is coming up almost sixty years now. So, pretty remarkable aircraft. And so, personally, it's sort of I see myself to be lucky. Be part of the the time that it's been in the RNZF, um, noting that, uh, that the, the replacement aircraft is also a C one hundred and thirty, albeit a different type. Yeah. Um, the 
the difference between the types, um, I mean, the obvious thing when you look at it is the new C130J has different prop blades and it's a longer fuselage, but what are the what are the major differences and is that it or everyone's looking at me here so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's different power plants uh, overall um, a more modern, modern power plant and hopefully more reliable and like you say it's a compass of blade aircraft as well so that'll bring upon down different challenges in some of the environments we that we go and also compass of blades not as uh, resilient or as hardy as you might find with uh, alloy blade propellers okay so we've seen over the years uh photos of the c-130h is operating in the desert and you see great big dust storms and everything like that and the props on them handle that better than the than the new props would or um it's probably more of the aggressive stuff you might find on um, more unprepared strips like uh, perhaps coral strips or more so that um the likes of uh gravel strips but um right that uh and Robin can probably speak more to that as well. She would have seen a bit of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't think I've seen much damage from uh, sand in the desert. Uh, we probably hadn't been flying through some of the storms that you might have seen. Uh, yeah. But we definitely have procedures for the engines and the props that we can follow to try and minimise the damage if we are subject to that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But as for um, what the J, how that will perform, I'm not too sure. But there's there's not too many um, C-130Hs left around the world in service, that, and none as old as ours, obviously, because ours were the first ones off the line. But um, is it still an aircraft model that is um, sustainable and, and you're getting parts still from Lockheed and that sort of thing for them? Or yeah, yeah, definitely. There's still, they probably find there's more out there than what we might think. Um, the H model... Herc was the predominant Herc uh, in the world um, fleet. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Herc operators' conferences I've been to, albeit there a little while ago, uh, you know, all the talk was around the H fleet because H fleet was very large. But to be fair, all the talk was sort of, a lot of it was centered on the aging H fleet. So, yes, the, uh, the J has been adopted. Much, um, much more around the place, and uh, like I say, is replacing that. But it's still very much a formidable um, platform, and it is supported. It's just uh, not as supported as what it might have been before. I would say most of our obsolescence issues are less around generic H model um, sustainment and more around the specific sustainment for our aircraft. So right. we obviously upgraded them, commenced in 2011, finished in 2015. Um, and we undertook a specific upgrade that isn't common with any other H fleets in the world, um, and therefore we have specific parts and needs that um, are drawing to the end of their um, sort of suitable life. But there's also an airframe restriction um, in terms of the structural integrity of the airframe. Um, there's a point at which um, there's essentially a risk around flying that um, we've perceived it, we don't want to move past. But with those upgrades that you mentioned that were... Um finished in 2015, that's not that long ago. Um, how, how did it affect the, the operating of the aircraft? Um, was it a big step for the aircraft or um, was it really just as an interim before something comes along as a replacement? I think it was only ever seen as a, as a short to medium term interim. When I say that, it still you know, extended the life of the aircraft by 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, 
but it was never seen as a, as a long-term solution because of those reasons I alluded to before. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the changes to the aircraft, there was sort of a two-fold element to it. One was um, we replaced the center wing, um, which improved the structural integrity and lifetime of the frame um, out to the, sort of the mid-2020s. Uh, but there was also a huge avionics overhaul um, on the inside of the aircraft. So it brought the aircraft and its systems up to the modern standards. Um, and the standards that the aircraft has now are, are still um, very much in tune with modern aircraft. And the latest J-model block upgrade, which only commenced uh, in the last 24 months, is the first J-model block upgrade that's actually superseded ours in terms of technology and capability. Um, can you tell me, uh, like, well, I was thinking these Hercs have been all over the world. Is, is there anywhere they haven't been? I mean, they've been into China and Russia and Antarctica. I don't know if there's been much in South America, but um, they, they've literally, over the last sort of six decades, carried New Zealand to the world, haven't they? Yeah, I, I think that's very much the case. I like talking to some of the older gentlemen that are around at reunions and so on. They've been to a lot of the places. It's it's very rare to hear that someone come up with somewhere new that we hadn't heard of. So yeah, I think it's very much a case of there's not very many places that they haven't been and picked up what's needed to be done for the government. Yeah. So where are the most interesting places that you guys have and girls been in the over the years? I think every year when we go to Antarctica, it's a really um, unique um, and challenging environment for us to operate in. So um, I know we go there on an annual basis, so uh, perhaps it's perceived as, as, a, as a normal operation or something that's not as unique. Um, but certainly from my perspective, we're one of the only operators in the world that go there. Um, there are some really unique challenges that come with that yeah. um, and that they've required for us to sort of adapt and overcome over the years, and, and we're still required to do so. Um, and there's also some unique risks that we need to manage and mitigate as best we can when we fly to Antarctica. So... Certainly for me, that's one of the places that stands out. I'm sure there's more around the table as well. I think for me, it's some of those Pacific Islands that not a lot of people actually get to travel to. Um, the uh, Tarawas, the, um, the Marshall Islands, quite unusual places to go to. Yeah. That uh, for me, probably, yeah, a bit more of an experience. It's somewhere completely different. Manahiki with the minister just recently. Um, awesome experience to go there and there's 230 people on the island. Wow. So for me, that was that was pretty cool. You could fit them all in there? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'd agree with the Antarctic and the islands experience as well, but um, we did go further afield places like up in um, Asia, Indonesia, um, those sort of places that you wouldn't think that New Zealand would have much of an involvement with, but yeah. you can actually see that we can be quite um, helpful when they're like humanitarian aid that needs delivering or scenarios like that. Yeah. Derry might have been uh, on the hook when we went to Vietnam, were you? <laughs> I just missed him on it. It's like been said before, it's, it's the unique places that are um, uh, that you don't, you wouldn't actually get to visit otherwise. You know, we were based in Kyrgyzstan, just get Kyrgyzstan for a little while. Um, uh, 20 odd years ago, I suppose. And um, so that was, that was quite, uh, unique. There's a couple of other places um, around as well that have already been mentioned. Indonesia was involvement with the uh, with the post um, tsunami um, aid that happened there. So um, yeah, and it was uh, very rewarding places to go with a herd. And you did feel that you 
were there in their best platform to, to be able to deliver that aid. Albeit an older one, you still knew that, hey, this is the platform, this is the one that does it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. With Herx, you just can't yeah. replace a Herc unless you buy another Herc, is it? There's, there's nothing better. Mm, pretty much. Yeah. Can you talk for the listeners about the various roles? Uh, I mean, obviously your transport role, but you also do parachute dropping and cargo parachute. But all the various roles that you you play with the, with the Herx and the squadron. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the various roles, but we don't really think of them that way. If I'm honest, you know. It, it's, uh, these are all capabilities and tasks that we undertake on a, on a day-to-day and weekly basis, um, and we actually don't significantly differentiate between them. Um, uh, last week, uh, we had a C-130 fly off the ice. Um, we did a dual um, boat drop into the Marlborough Sounds with the Special Forces. Um, we did a parachute sortie into Woodburn, uh, where they set up an infrared runway on a grass runway that we landed on night vision goggles. Um, and we did low level formation flying with the Singaporean Air Force. Um, so that was just last week on the yeah. C-130. Wow. So we don't, we don't sort of, um, in our own minds, I don't think, differentiate significantly between the roles. It's, these are, it's a huge spectrum of capabilities that we deliver, um, but the aircraft and our crews are ready to deliver any of those capabilities at almost any given time. Um, and we do so on a regular basis. Have you guys got favourite jobs then? That what what are, what are the ones you enjoy doing the most? I think for me personally, uh, ten to twelve thousand feet over Auckland City on a beautiful clear night doing paratrooping um, with the back door open. That to me is right up there. on probably one of the things I enjoy the most mm-hmm. is just hanging out there and enjoying what you can see and and getting that training done. Uh, for me, I really enjoyed the disaster relief operations that we did. So it was pretty amazing flying into places and you could see the devastation on the ground uh, from the air and uh, flying back into there a few days later, you might actually see uh, the results of what we've delivered. So we could see tarpaulins on the ground and shelters set up and people actually being helped. So that's pretty cool. Well, it's funny because I think, <clears throat> you know, each of the roles brings their own sort of specific reward Um in a different way you can enjoy it. Certainly the, a lot of the tactical flying is it can be really challenging and, and personally rewarding and, and exciting. Um, the HADAR role is extremely rewarding, uh, very fulfilling, and then even um, some of the basic transport tasks can take you places you would never go. So you get you know very experiential and very, um, you know, it's almost like you, you get to be a, an aviator by day and then you can, uh, you can enjoy and be a bit of a tourist by night. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't, wouldn't necessarily say I have a favourite. Um, I think as you go through your career, there's different stages you enjoy more, and um, and it sort of it changes with you. Okay. With the the new aircraft that's coming on, it's a little bit longer in the fuselage. Uh, you'll be able to obviously carry more um, freight. So yeah, uh, so with the new aircraft, it's two extra pallet stations we didn't have before. Um, it's it's longer, um, so our bulk does go up. So we've got more cubage than we had before. We've got a, a cargo handling system that's a lot more effective than what we have now. Um, we can do things just a little bit better um, with an upgraded technology. Um, Weight-wise, I don't know the data 100% off the top of my head, but there is an increase that you can operate more effectively um, for longer with. But um, yeah, capability-wise for cargo, there is an improvement. 
So uh, over the recent probably 20 years, you would have been with things like Bullseye and, and these other competitions, you would have been competing against other air forces that actually have Js. And did they, did they have an advantage over the Hs or? No. Because no. <laughs> no. you guys still win quite regularly, don't you? Yeah, I think the thing with the J model is it's built to be very efficient. So it has, it has a two pilot um, flight deck. Our, um, our flight deck has two pilots, a flight engineer and an air warfare officer or a navigator. Um, and the reality is it doesn't matter how well you build the technology, um, you can't replace people. Um, and so when you put um, an aircraft in a dynamic and challenging environment, um, having an integrated four-person crew, um, particularly with our new avionics systems um, that are essentially as good as the J models, um, well, they were up until about 24 months ago, um, meant that we had a real advantage. Um, now, that's not to say that you need that crew model um, for all of your tasking. In fact, for 99% of your tasking, you don't need it. So it's a balance. So, so when uh, you transition onto the Js, you're going to lose some of your aircrew roles. Um, how many? How many are going? Is it the air warfare officer and the engineer? And the flight engineer. That's correct. So you'll be down to a, a two-person crew as well. I'll be a four-person crew because we'll still have two load masters of down course. the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, two in the cockpit. Yeah. Okay. Th those. It, those flight engineer roles are just basically disappearing out there. It's like a, it's like a getting extinct really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sadly it is. So I guess the way that the J operates will have to be slightly different from the way we operate uh, the H and the way that we take maintainers away um, on trips when we're away from home base. So there'll yeah. just be perhaps, I don't, I'm not sure what the plan is, but an extra person or a, might have to be a supervisor that travels with the aircraft. Basically, just a different way of operating. Yeah, it does present some uh, opportunities to change, change things, um, and uh, yeah, adapt to the new aircraft. Hmm. Will there be any sort of new roles come along uh, for the new aircraft, or or any roles disappear, or will it be pretty much business as usual? I think that's one of the things we'll find out as we adapt to operating the new aircraft. But at the moment, we're planning. Um, we obviously, won't have navigators or flight engineers on board. Uh, but otherwise, the aircraft and the systems that support it are largely familiar to us. Yeah. Yeah. The what is there an extended range of the new aircraft, or is it pretty much the same range? I think, like all aircraft, the answer is it depends. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, we talked about the composite props and um, before and, and potentially they're not as, I guess, hard wearing as some of the alloy props, um, particularly in some of those um, unprepared strip scenarios, but they are a lot more effective and a lot more efficient um, in the cruise and in the climb. Um, and that's where you gain a lot of your efficiencies uh, versus the current aircraft. Um, so that does allow you to have an extended range. Um, but of course, it depends on payload. Um, it also depends on altitude. So C-130J is able to climb a lot higher uh, than the C-130H, but it does run into um, speed issues and RVSM issues, so depending on what part of the world it's flying. Yeah. The C-130H models that you've currently got are proper warbirds. They've been to war several times with carrying, I mean, obviously carrying freight, but you know, they're not frontline 
combat aircraft, but they've been into Vietnam, they've been into um, uh, Gulf War, and I guess various other places of conflict in between. Um, have any of you guys actually operated in war zones? I think all of us in our career in this group here have at one stage or another been on operations in those theatres that have been uh, the predominant theatre uh, during our career spans. So I think, yeah, that's a pretty easy question as to, yeah, all of us yeah. would pretty much be the case on that one. Okay. Have you got any stories, of any war stories? Do <laughs> <laughs> things get a little tricky? Um, look, I mean, we've been lucky enough to, to operate in everywhere from East Timor, um, you know, Solomon Islands, Bougainville, through to Iraq, you know, Afghanistan, and more modern times. Um, yeah, I mean, and you always have some some really interesting experiences there. You know, certainly, um, I don't think we ever envisage flying into somewhere like Bamiyan in Afghanistan. You know, it's an extremely challenging place to to operate in and out of. Um, you know, it's at about six or seven thousand foot elevation, um, surrounded by incredibly mountainous terrain. Um, it can get unbelievably hot in summer, um, so aircraft performance is a real issue. Um, the runway is completely unprepared. Um, two minutes before you land, there will be people walking across with donkeys and goats and everything that you can imagine. Um, the runway is not straight. It's got a dog leg in it. Um, so when you're talking about operating in that type of environment, then you overlay the threat environment, both from the ground to air perspective and on the ground, um, yeah, inevitably you get some uh, some very interesting and some fascinating stories from that sort of environment. But um, some of those environments, of course, you know, provide some uh, other opportunities to see things as well. You know, this, this is a was an active um, hostile zone, I suppose we might describe it. But uh, after you land and uh, go through some of the challenges that CEO spoken about on the on the pretty rough strip, um, you know, there's a lot of warmth around you as well because a lot. Of, well, the children that are around there would, you know, would just flock to come and see you. And, um, yeah, and many times we'd be prepared for that and take them uh, little bits and pieces that they never had access to, you know, and uh, just just add value to their lives, you know, colouring pencils and things like that. So that was always a nice, uh, nice feeling. There must be so many thousands of people that have been on the beneficiary end of those hurts turning up and the roughest strips in the world and you know rolling out all that humanitarian stuff it's amazing, that's amazing really. i mm-hmm. think for robin and i um, doing palu back in 2018 um, being able to pull 150 odd people in the back of the aircraft out of palu and then take them back and just watching the joy on their faces we landed um, back in Palapapan and um, just escorting them off the aircraft and how happy they were after seeing how destroyed Palu was flying over it. So, yeah, like thousands of people. Uh, the Philippines, you were moving 150-odd people a time in the back of the aircraft um, around moving them out of evacuation zones. The Christchurch earthquake, exactly the same with all the rest homes and stuff. Bandarach. Uh, Bandarach. Oh, yeah. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have probably been through the back of the aircraft over the 60 years in humanitarian aid. When you think about it, probably most of them had never flown before. Some? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It certainly appeared that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember hearing about, uh, I think it was just before the Gulf War, 
uh, same thing, getting people out of the way. And they wanted to take the goats and the chickens and everything on board. Do you, do you have that very often? Or? I haven't come across it myself. Um, but yeah, stories from the old days, you hear those stories. Yeah. I think a lot of the people have got minimum belongings after what's happened to them anyway. So yeah. you see a lot of people show up with pretty much the clothes they're wearing and maybe a plastic bag of items and that. So yeah. it's quite sad. Yeah. Have you guys been involved with um, our troops that went to Ukraine, uh, or not Ukraine, but to London to, for supporting the Ukraine side of things? No, so the, our troops were transported up there by the Boeing 757, which is also part of 40 Squadron. Yeah. Um, and we did have a C-130 operating out of the UK before the troops arrived uh, for about four or five months. Okay. Um, I just think, per chance, none of us were actually on that deployment. Oh, yeah. So um, is there much crossover between the Boeing flight and the Hercules flight, or are you guys pretty much kept separate and you have your own career paths with those aircraft? I think for the Loadmaster trade, um, there is a crossover for us. Um, we can, the two quite different roles as Loadmaster, same trade, mm-hmm. but it's it's a it's a different role on the 7.5. So um, for our trade, yeah, there is a crossover. We are kept separate while we are operating. Yeah. So none of us will be dual qualified or anything like that. But uh, it's a it's another career path you could go along. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a completely different role, um, but doing the same job um, yeah. with the same career path. But just... On a different frame, I guess it's hard to hard to define, but uh, yeah, that's probably the only crossover we've got across all the trades. Maybe the pilots can cross over as well, but okay. more so for us. Um, from the maintenance perspective, Forest Squad Maintenance Flight uh, maintains both aircraft types, and um, and is that initially might appear like it's quite a challenge, but it's never has been. You know, there's a bit of energy was put into making sure that that was done done well and um, and it sort of flowed on from uh, when we were doing exactly the same with the 757's predecessor, the 727's we had as well. But, uh, so there's certainly some fundamental differences in the aircraft um, uh, design and maintenance um, practices uh, as well. Uh, it's just one having been designed as a airliner and um, it's a different, uh, just a different way I'm thinking about things, and also there's an age gap there as well. Yeah. But what what do you think of a, about with the, the with the current Hercs? Their legacy to the country. I mean, they're they're an incredible aircraft, just like the Orions. Um, they've both done sterling work for the same length of time, pretty much. And uh, it's kind of sad that they're leaving, really. Although at least you're getting more Hercs. Yeah, I think it's pretty it's pretty remarkable that we've had almost 60 years of service out of the C-130s. You know, I don't think you could identify almost anything that um, has been purchased by the government in the 60s that's still being actively used um, today. You know, so that, I guess that shows the durability um, and, and I guess the service they've provided. Um, but at the end of the day, they are a, a tool and a piece of equipment and I guess what's really made them has been the people that have served on 40 Squadron for the last 60 odd years that have really, um, you know, I think every time we go somewhere with C-130s, uh, people always comment on how well maintained our C-130s are. Um, you know, our, our maintenance people take real pride in, in how they maintain the aircraft um, 
and they have a real personal connection to the aircraft. You know, unlike a large air force, we might have significant platforms across multiple squadrons. We have one squadron, um, and and people know each platform intimately, um, and they take real pride in their work, and that really shows. Um, and, and that's been that way for for decades. Um, and I think the same on the operator side. You know, um, we take real pride in in how we operate the aircraft, um, the relationships we have with the maintenance team. Um, how we conduct ourselves as a squadron. So I think that's probably the real story here. And, and I think um, that when we usher in the new C-130Js, that certainly won't change. You know, that will be exactly the same. And we'll take real pride in our work, uh, both on the maintenance and the operating side. Um, and I think that sort of legacy will continue in that vein. Is there any sort of, um, maybe from the manufacturer, uh, any expected length of life that a C-130J is expected to have, like say, do they put 30 years on or something like that? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. 30 years yeah. is the expected um, life for the C-130J. And, and it's quite likely that we'll probably go longer than that because of the way that we operate, I guess. Yeah, it becomes increasingly challenging to operate aircraft outside their expected life cycle um, in the modern environment. Yeah. Um, the OEM um, might decline to provide structural engineering support past a certain date um, due to potential liabilities. Um, so I think we will plan on operating it for 30 years. Um, and then it's really hard to say, you know, that sort of decision will be something we'll look at in 25 years time. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone in this room will be well and truly out of the game by then. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of the, uh, the current C-130H with the upgrade, you've got partial um, glass cockpit and partial instruments that are the old style steam gauges um the new aircraft is all glass cockpit is it largely yes. largely yeah so is there much of a much of a difference in learning to fly it and and operate it you think yeah i think for the uh the concepts of the way you operate the aircraft are probably quite similar to how we do it now the the aviation systems are aviation systems um, it'll be that fine tuning of operating where stuff is on that airplane and how to access that stuff i know specifically for the low masters down the back the whole cargo compartment's a whole new treat there's electronic stuff all over the place right. so that'll be um difference uh, differences for those guys to yeah. to come online and um, be introduced to that but i think fundamentally the Aviation's the same, it's just in a different place and it's shown to you in a different way. Um, and you've probably got more information than you had before, just projected differently. Right, so will crews be going to the States to train up on them like the, the Orion crews are doing with the P8s? Yeah, it'll be a similar model. We'll go to the United States, get our initial training and, and probably some experience on the USAF C-130Js. And that means when we get our own aircraft back here, we'll hit the ground running. Yeah. Uh, it should be a fairly um, short um, introduction to service, um, given that there's limited differences between the, the current model and the new model. Yeah. And they're a well-proven aircraft that have been in service overseas for many, what, a couple of decades, haven't they, really? Yeah, so I think the first ones were introduced in 97. Um, and so as a platform, they've been around for 25 years already. Um, they're incredibly well-proven and uh, incredibly widespread now. Um, which gives us real confidence in the ability to operate them. Um, but they're not a 25-year-old platform. They've undergone their own upgrade system. Yeah. Um, 
in the most recent upgrade, about 24 months, um, has really modernized the avionics and the systems on board the aircraft and, and it's now cutting edge. So I know with the P8, the powers that be have decided that when overseas upgrades happen, our ones will be going through the same system and keep compatible with the rest of the world instead of doing our own thing that we have done in the past. Is that going to be the same with the Hertz or has that not been decided yet? Yeah, the capability upgrade requirements for the C-130J are slightly different. Um, the problem with the P8 is if you miss an upgrade, then you're off the pathway and you can't get back on it. Yeah, It's slightly different for the C-130J. Um, there's an ability to retrograde upgrades. Um, so you can skip steps in the upgrade process and you can evaluate each step as it comes along to see whether it's fit for purpose for the capabilities and outputs that you're looking to undertake on the system. Okay. So um, the opportunity's there, um, but we haven't necessarily committed um, to undertaking those. It's inevitable that throughout its 30-year life it will require upgrading. Um, in order to meet the requirements to fly around the world, as the you know, as you know, the aviation requirements are becoming more and more stringent as the airspace becomes tighter and tighter, and there's more and more limitations and requirements placed on um, airlines and aircraft. Yeah. Yep. So, um, prior to the selection of the C-130J, there were a few options there, and you know, one of them was A400. Uh, there was a another option from. Um, Embraer. Yeah. Um, were you guys personally satisfied with getting another Lockheed, or would you have liked to have gone to something different, or do you want to not say? <laughs> I mean, I th I'd say personally that, like I just said, the C-130J is just such a proven platform, yeah. and um, and the best kind of ability is availability. You know, and so it's not just you know how capable and available it is and supportable it is in year one. It still needs to be supportable. Um, and widely used in year 25. And for my mind, the um, C-130J is the only platform that meets those requirements. It's also a, a common um, partner model. So it's, it's operated by all our partners, all our allies. So the ability to access parts and maintenance and sustainment whilst you're away from New Zealand, which is what we do, um, it is huge. Whereas if you go for a more bespoke and less well-known model, uh, then you can really run into sustainment issues. Yeah, this might have interesting thoughts. Yeah, I, I'm very much along the same lines. I think those other two models that we looked at, they have their advantages in different ways. Um, they haven't been around as long, so they're not as proven. So they could swing that way. But um, for us, I think uh, the way we're going is the smart way to go. Yeah. And from a maintenance point of view? Oh, definitely. Um, we've obviously got a history of maintaining the C-130, uh, a lot of stuff in the C-130 will be the same as well. Um, so that will make uh, life easy going forward. One thing that I notice uh, with the thought of school to skies and all that, I mean, are there that many female uh, flight engineers in the Air Force? Uh, no, it's no? just myself at the moment. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there are a lot of females that have entered the tech trades yes. and a lot more... Um, now than when I was in the tech trades as well, which is good to see. Yeah. 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 What, what, are, what are the most uh, interesting or marginal strips that you guys are flying into? Marginal. I think flying into Suai and East Timor was pretty interesting. Um, it was a pretty challenging place to get into. I think in terms of uh, technical flying challenges and, and sort of 
three environment, like I talked about before, Birmingham really stands out, um, primarily because of the terrain and the altitude, um, made it pretty unique. And the strip itself was um, was pretty challenging outright. So I think, yeah, certainly from my experience, there's a place that we always found pretty challenging to get in and out of. So in the earlier years of the Birmingham strip, uh, it was very rough and um, there was some work done on it. And uh, as time went on, where you know, NZDF was in Birmingham for a long time. Yeah. And but the the landings that were on the um, uh, on the strip when it was in its rougher form were pretty were pretty hard. And and the aircraft, we would do extra protection work on the aircraft to uh, to minimise the, the stone damage that would get picked up. And uh, but there was always stone damage um, that uh, the aircraft sustained as well. So. Uh, the uh, the soil strip as well the the CO spoke about uh, yeah that that was um that was a, a challenging place to uh, fly into as well you know and quite a nice uh, quite a fantastic approach if you're in the flight deck and you fly up and all of a sudden you have to fly through this little um gully in the hills and and uh, come around really quick and uh, and land you know and uh, I was on one flight where um the uh, captain landed the aircraft perhaps a touch touch short and um, and there was a there was a temporary or a, a extra um, runway extension that was put on there. It was called a PC, PCP PCP yeah. runway, which was um, which was a surface that you could um, you could uh, back up or taxi over or um, use as part of your as your um, as your takeoff, but um, wasn't really designed to land on. So uh, you had to be a bit careful there. And uh, one time they got a little bit clipped and chunked it chunked a piece of tyre up and we had to assess and make some decisions on and uh, in remote places so <clears throat> that's part of the challenges and the excitements of going to those places as well. Yeah, yeah I'd agree with everything Darry was just saying so a lot of those strips that we went into it wasn't uncommon for us to then be crawling around on the ground and taping up broken lights and assessing uh, tyre damage and dents and all sorts of things so it always made it quite interesting. Um, there was one particular trip um, went to an airfield up in the uh, the highlands of Papua New Guinea um, and I'd never seen so much mud over Hercules so when we got back to Port Moresby we actually had to go out and buy um, brushes and like car wash gear and I think a team of about a dozen of us spent half a day washing the work so wow. yeah. <laughs> Do you um, carry much in the way of spares? Uh, you know, tyres or anything like uh, that? It depends where we're going. So if it's just a standard flight out of Nilpai or we're not going too far, we have uh, what we call a standard engineer's pack-up and it's just made up of know, 20 or so items that we figure these might um, become unserviceable and we can replace them in situ with the team we've got. Yeah. Uh, if we're going somewhere further afield, we might take a what are those called? The big pickups? The, oh, yeah. Um, deployable pickup? Yeah, like, like a whole pallet worth of a maintenance pickup. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of if we're going away for a couple of weeks or more. And most of those parts should see us through. Okay. Yeah. It's not necessarily because the aircraft might be older or it might, um, it might break. It does a little bit here and there, obviously. But um, a big part of that is because, you know, un unlike... Uh, Airlines, you know, being a military uh, operator, we don't fly to hubs, mm. so we're flying to all sorts of places. So we have to be um, self-contained, and that's why we have developed pickups like that over the years and the ability to, uh, you know, field fix our own 
and that's it. Yeah, that makes sense. But what are your favourite exercises to do, uh, you know, against other nations? Have you got any particular ones that you really enjoy? I think for me, Green Flag in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas is a lot of fun. It's quite a dynamic exercise. Um, it's kind of a competition at the same time. Um, the scenarios change on you. Things, loads change, drops change, everything changes. Um, it's real dynamic. That's personally one of my favourites to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, Red Flag Alaska, um, which we only started uh, flying in probably about five, six years ago, was pretty interesting. The terrain around there is pretty amazing. Um, the weather, the environment, um, and also just seeing, uh, I guess, the US capability that they maintain in Alaska was really fascinating, pretty interesting as well. So that, that was a new place we'd been in, a new flying environment. Um, the exercise itself, um, you know, it was sort of a, a two-story wall with uh, with the fast jets up at above 40,000 feet and then uh, then us and a bunch of other people down below 1,000 feet. So there wasn't much action between 1,000 and 40,000 feet. It was pretty interesting. Um, but it, it was a great exercise and, and, you know, we certainly learned a lot. We hadn't been in that environment for quite a while. So, yeah, we've just been back back there recently, uh, a couple of months ago. So, and we'll hopefully continue to go there and really helps grow our crews and, and I guess expose us to what a modern um, combat environment could look like. Yeah. The Alaska, although I didn't go up on the uh, red flag um, exercise, I did go to the planning conference and uh, with the Hercules flight commander. And yeah, it sort of looked like a, a wonderful place to go and fly in. And the the space there that surrounds us um, is something that we're not used to. You know, the, the airspace that was available to uh, conduct exercise in. That's yeah. pretty um, pretty huge. Yeah, Wouldn't you have to be a little bit worried about uh, all the little bush pilots and their cubs and that sort of thing down that way? <laughs> or are they lower? That's anywhere, really. Yeah, I mean they're pretty they're pretty competent aviators, to be fair, um, and, and they know the the military areas well, um, and, and they tend to keep pretty clear. And the, the military um, the, the military zone is actually a fair way north. Um, where you might see most of the bush pilots. It's, oh, yeah. it's really over an isolated area. Um, and it's a sub substantial size. Of, if you were to compare it, it would be, you know, the size of, you know, maybe the Waikato or something like that. Oh, like it's huge. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, what about air show stuff, getting out to the New Zealand public? What's that like? I think it's really enjoyable. Um, there's a lot of people that are really interested about what we do and being able to show off what we do is, is cool. Yeah. Um, the Warbirds over Wanaka is the Wairarapas this year's Wairarapa. Um, and with COVID over the past three years, we haven't really been able to show that off too much. So I think over the next 12 months, I think that's going to be exciting for people to see what we do again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, we'll be out there in force. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to engaging with New Zealand public again. Awesome. What would you say to young people thinking about joining up and possibly getting into the Hercules, uh, the new Hercs? I mean, it could, the, fact, the fact that all of us are sitting here means we would probably encourage that highly. Uh, you know, uh, the the career opportunities are, are pretty diverse. You know, it's not just about flying. It's not just about going away. The Air Force offers great career opportunities. Um, you know, they're a great employer. Um, and you don't just get a job, you know, you get a career. You know, you get a second family, you get a, a bunch of experiences and trainings. 
um, that you probably never dreamed of when you joined. So yeah, I always have, and I always will, you know, really encourage people to look at the Air Force as a as a potential career option. In relation to the uh, platforms, as I think all your pitch coming from the um, back, you know, if, if you think about the sixties and seventies, this is when the government of New Zealand actually bought a lot of the assets that we've been um, operating uh, um, for recent uh, in recent times. You know, so so this decade presents um, you know, new opportunities where there's newer platforms as well, effectively replacing you know, that stuff that was bought a long time ago and. Um, and a lot of it was all bought around the same sort of time, and, and I think it also became a, a, um, a problem, uh, you know, when you start to forecast replacing this, because a lot of things are going to come due um, similar times, and, uh, and uh, the Rotary Force uh, obviously got identified and replaced it all earlier, and it's created a bit of a staggered going forward as well. But, um, so the maritime platform and the, uh, and the fixed wind transport platform you know, will be, will be uh, over the next number of years. And, and then later there'll be some other areas identified. Yeah. So with the training these days, um, it's all changed a little bit since I was in the Air Force, but I guess from a pilot's point of view, they go from the Texan to the um, uh, King Air, or Super King Air, and then to the Herc. Is that much of it? I mean, it's probably, you wouldn't have done it that way, I'm not sure, but um, is, is, is that much of a step up from the King Air to the Herc? I mean, none of us did that, so it's no. a new training pipeline. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the issue. I mean, when people look at something like that, they think moving up in the size of the aircraft is the challenge. But but really, it's the different crew operating model and the, the different operating methods of the aircraft that are the change. So yeah. it's not it's not actually about stepping onto a bigger aircraft that becomes challenging. Um, yeah. It's more around just understanding how a new aircraft operates and what the expectations and capabilities are. So that's where most of the challenges come from. Yeah, yeah. And of course, once you get onto the Hercules, you're with a crew that's all done it before anyway, aren't you? So. The support package is there for anyone on the crew. We've yeah. we've got a wide variety of experience on the crew, um, especially with our flight engineers that have been around for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, they like to... Uh, to share that knowledge around, so yeah, it's it's there for everyone to to be supported well yeah. as a crew. So uh, when the when the Jays start to arrive in New Zealand, uh, I guess there's going to be a period where you're operating both types together um, for a, a bit of a time before everyone's up to speed on the J. So is it possible that we're going to end up seeing, you know, maybe ten aircraft here or? Or will they start to phase them out like they have with the Orion's um, that sort of stagger it? Yeah, we'll follow a similar path. So we're actually re retiring our first C-130 in uh, March next year. Okay. Um, so not far away. Um, so that aircraft at that point in time would have normally gone into a, a group servicing, which is a, a deep level servicing taking anywhere from nine to 12 months. Yeah. But obviously with you know only two years left um, until we retire all the aircraft yeah. um, from that point, uh, there's little point in undertaking a, a, a large significant servicing like that. So I think, well, I don't think, I know that by the time um, the C-130Hs have been retired, we'll be down to uh, three flying aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certainly a possibility of seeing, I guess, up to eight um, C-130s okay. available at any point in time. Um, but that's not really the aim, if I'm perfectly honest. You know, it, 
it's nice um, and everyone would like to see it, uh, but there's a lot of other things we're trying to achieve, um, particularly in terms of ensuring that the C-138H is operated effectively and safely through the end of life. Yeah. And in particular for the J, making sure that that's introduced efficiently so that we don't drag that out. With, we're opening up that capability as soon as we can. Sure. Well, I can't think of anything else to ask you guys, so thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and, and talk to you. If you have any last messages, now's the No, thanks for coming along. It's great to have the opportunity. Cool. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.